0: As we neared the end of that book Of Ephesians I started to think about What I would teach on next And I really didn't want to jump off Into a whole other book That would take years And so I thought Maybe I'll just teach on something topical Like uh, circumcision Or consecrating your firstborn Or excessive fasting Or something fun like that You know and, and uh But that didn't really appeal to me And I don't think that it would appeal to you either And uh So I just, I've been thinking about what I was going to do, and it kind of dawned on me that, uh, look, you know, I've I've taught two books uh, of the New Testament, two complete series, exegetical, uh, verse by verse. And um, it took me five years to teach those two books between the both of them. And so immediately I start thumbing through the Old Testament. I say, I'm going to teach something different. I'm going to get out of the New Testament. I'm going to go to the Old Testament. And so I start thumbing through the Old Testament, And almost every book that I looked at had at least 10 or 12 chapters, some as many as 150, and uh, because it took me three years to teach through Ephesians, I thought, man, I probably better not try that. So uh, I was looking at Ezekiel, and if I would have started the book of Ezekiel, I'd die before I got done with it, and so we would never get finished, and so I was at a loss. I, I couldn't come up with anything that I could teach because I'm kind of a sequential teacher, I like to teach things in sequence. I don't like to grab things in the middle, uh, <clears throat> but rather start a book at the beginning, finish it at the end, the way you read most books in life. And uh, but then it dawned on me that maybe I should just read and teach the Gospels. You know, it, we we do a lot of kinds of teachings in this church, and so we teach all through the Scriptures, all over the place, one into the other. We don't center in on one certain thing when we get to it. We teach it, we cover it, and that's what we do. And and um. But we are particularly students of the Torah, and that's probably where most a lot of our concentration is at, and and uh, we target we target the law a pretty good bit, and so here I am, you know, wanting to teach the Gospels, but at the same time I don't want to jump into a whole book of the Gospels. You know, like teach all the way through the Book of Matthew's and or Matthew or Mark or something, and because it's so lengthy. And lo and behold, Philip popped into my mind, and Acts chapter eight, and so I thought, hey, Philip preached the gospel. And uh, to the eunuch, he didn't use Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John at all. They weren't even penned yet. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John did not even exist when Philip preached to the eunuch. The eunuch said, how do I understand without a teacher? Yes. Well, Philip was that teacher. So anyone have a, any guess of the scripture that Philip, Philip explained to the eunuch? Anybody got any idea? Well, was the book of Isaiah. Okay, Isaiah is the book that that Philip was explaining to the the eunuch in Acts chapter 8, specifically some of the verses out of Isaiah 53. And so I thought, if Philip can share the gospel with the eunuch and just use Isaiah 53, then why can't I? And so that started my study on Isaiah 53. Just one chapter, right? Well, you know me. And uh, one chapter doesn't usually work real good, so one chapter with 12 verses uh, relates to you guys and 14 or 15 sermons. So that's just <laughs> the way I that's just the way I do things. And so now we have a sermon series, not just a sermon on Isaiah 53, but it's going to be great. Isaiah is a profound book um, of prophecy, the whole thing. But I've only been studying specifically Isaiah 53 for a couple months now, and I believe that I have a lot to share with you guys a whole lot to share with you, and I believe I can present it to you in a very simple way that you have never seen or heard before, and I'm interested in doing that. Not to be different. I don't want to be the guy that um, that that always goes against the grain. I don't want to be the guy that comes up with something new just because everybody believes it one way, I've got to do it different. I don't want to be that guy. I don't, I don't like that, and I don't. I don't want to pursue the Bible in that direction. However, I do believe that I may have, I may can explain it to you in a way that you've never heard it, and um, and I say that because through my studies I have misunderstood Isaiah in some ways for as long as I've known about the prophecy. So hopefully, I'll be able to share this with you as I have learned, and over the next months, over the next months, I'll do this, and maybe we will all gain a better understanding of the prophecy and the gospel that's tied up in Isaiah chapter fifty-three. So with that being said. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Isaiah 53 and we'll get started. Now, um, today's sermon will basically just be an overview of the whole chapter and then over the course of several months to come, we'll dissect it verse by verse. We'll go through each piece of it. By the way, before we get started, by show of hands, how many people in here have read the Bible all the way through? A bunch of them. All right. By show of hands, how many people in here know exactly what all the scriptures mean throughout the bible good (laughs) because i thought i was going to be the only one i didn't i didn't know that they were more like me um well let me put it to you this way the meaning of the scripture is the scripture all right the meaning of the scripture is the scripture in other words if you don't understand the meaning you don't have the revelation i'm Certainly not saying that if you've ever read the Bible, but you don't understand parts of it, or if you're, you know, you're no different than any of the rest of us. That, that, that happens to all of us. We all read and sometimes we don't understand things. And that's okay. Don't get me wrong. We all have things that we don't understand fully. But through diligent study and good help and teaching from others, just like Philip did for the eunuch, then we can understand better and get the revelation that's intended. You can have a whole tractor-trailer trailer load of Bibles, and I used this analogy in, in uh, Ephesians 6 when I talked about the sword of the Spirit, but you can have a whole trailer load of Bibles, and if you don't understand what's in those Bibles or what it means, it's just a bunch of paper bound up in leather bindings. It doesn't do you a bit of good. It's just Bibles, okay? you You'll be just as lost as last year's Easter egg with a whole bunch of Bibles. That's just kind of the way that'll end up. But with a teacher, it's much easier to help you understand what you read. That's what teachers are for. That's that's what we do. And you know the verse where it says in Romans chapter ten, it says, "How can they believe without? Uh, how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher?" Basically, that just means how can someone understand these things without someone else explaining it to them? Okay, it it requires people to teach. There, that, that is a biblical position people have to do that people who with understanding need to teach people without understanding so that they learn Amen. the eunuch in Acts 8 had this very trouble he had this very problem Philip asked the eunuch do you understand what you're reading and the eunuch said how in the world can I unless somebody guides me yes. how in the world will I understand what you're teaching or what it says unless somebody guides me and it's that way for a lot of people for a long time growing up in church And throughout my early Christian life as an adult, I was in the same predicament. I couldn't understand because I was uneducated. Not because I didn't want to understand, but I just couldn't pick up the Bible. I I was uneducated. I needed some help. I needed a guide. And the sole goal of reading the Bible is to understand exactly what it means. But keep in mind that sometimes we need some guidance to help us understand better the meaning behind the Scripture. And there's nothing wrong with that. So don't feel bad if you don't understand absolutely everything that you read. Find a teacher. Ask a preacher. Get some help to understand just like the eunuch did with a gospel message with Philip. And with that being said, that is precisely what I'm going to try to do with you guys as it pertains to Isaiah 53. Now, I know that most everybody in here has probably read part of Isaiah 53, if not all of Isaiah 53. But what I want to do is go through it verse by verse and then see if we can understand it both sequentially and contextually. But first, we'll start this week with kind of an overview of the chapter. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Isaiah 53, and I'm going to go ahead and read all the way through it. Starting in verse 1, it says, Who has believed what we have heard? And who has the arm of Yahweh been revealed to? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form of splendor that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like one people turned away from. He was despised, and we didn't value him. Yet he himself wore our sickness, and he carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by the Almighty and afflicted, but he was pierced because of our transgressions. He was crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all went away, went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way and Yahweh has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shears he did not open his mouth he was taken away because of oppression and judgment and who considered his fate for he was cut off from the land of the living he was struck because of my people's rebellion they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man at his death although he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully yet Yahweh was pleased to crush him and he made him sick when you make him a restitution offering he will see his seed he will prolong his days, and the will of Yahweh will succeed by his hand. he will see it out of his anguish, and he will be satisfied with his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many and he will carry their iniquities, therefore I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mightiest spoil because he submitted himself to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. All right. I said that um, I was just going to do a preview or overview of Isaiah 53 and then in the weeks to come we'll go through it verse by verse. But I want to ask you something. Did you know that when it comes to the various religions in the world that Christianity is the only religion that has two ancient books that are separated by hundreds of years but are still in perfect harmony with one another? It's the only religion. The Older Testament tells us what was going to take place, and the New Testament confirms precisely that it did take place. No other religion does that. And to me, that in itself proves the divine authorship of the Bible because only Yahweh can separate time frames like that and actually bring them back to fruition. So the Old Testament gives the prophecy, and the New Testament verifies its validity. Now, Isaiah 53 is a prophecy that took place approximately 700 years prior to the coming of Christ. And obviously, after just reading it, you can surely see that within that prophecy, the main focal point is the Messiah. Well, in my inferior mind, this is the most stunning, compelling, complex, detailed, verifiable prophecy in the Bible. Some scholars have called this the fifth gospel when actually... Actually, in all actuality, it should be the first gospel. Since it was written at least 700 years before the other gospels. First comes Isaiah 53, then Matthew, then Mark, then Luke, then John. The reason they call this a gospel is because it contains every part of what is needed to be the gospel message. His ascension, it contains the Messiah's arrival first, his life second, his death his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, his intercession, his exaltation, and they does it all in one chapter. The roots of all the Gospels are right here in Isaiah chapter 53. See, the clearest explanation of the death of the Messiah is not in the book of Romans. A lot of people would say that, but the clearest defini- definition of the death of the Messiah is right here. There's no New Testament passage that is as clear or as deep and as full as the explanation of the death of Christ. As this chapter. And it was written some 700 years before he ever arrived. How crazy is that? That's wild. That's wild to me. 700 years before Christ comes on the scene, his whole life is predicted right here in Isaiah 53. That's a big deal. That gives me faith. Okay? What gives me faith is proof. I know that that sounds weird, but your faith is built by evidence. And if anybody's honest... That's exactly what faith is built by. Right. You don't just have faith and it just flies around all over the, the, you know, out there in the air. That's not the way that works. Faith is built on something. And, and, and for me, and in this case, it's built on evidence. If someone told you that they loved you all the time, but they never made any effort to prove that they love you, then, then your faith in the fact that they said they loved you would diminish they never made an. They never made an effort. It would be like me telling Kim, "I love you every day, every day, every day." I tell her I love her, and at night I come home and slap her. You know what I mean? She would, she would think that you know he doesn't really love me. You know he says he loves me, but he you know beats me up when he gets home. Do you know why I believe that Jonah was swallowed up by a big fish? One because Jerry Clower talks about it. I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing. No, I believe that Jonah was swallowed up by a big fish because. It's not because the story's believable. That's an incredibly unbelievable story, right? It's hard to believe. But we believe it because the authority behind the story is believable. I believe who who said it. That's why I believe it. The authority of the Bible has been proven time and time again. And because the authority behind this that story is also the authority behind this story, then we can have the faith that we need to believe that Jonah was swallowed up by a fish. See... Yahweh spoke ahead of time about Yeshua's ministry, his life, his death, his burial and resurrection. And then it came to pass some 700 years later, right? The proof is in the pudding. The prophecy came to fruition. And what was spoken about actually happened. And so it's because I have faith in that, in the truth of what I can see happening or taking place in the Bible, that I also can have faith in Jonah getting swallowed up by a big fish. Because it says so. So speaking of having faith in the Bible, let me show you something amazing about this book. It's not a, it's not by coincidence that these things happen, but rather by divine intervention. That's right. So Isaiah is split into two books, okay, or two sections, okay? How is the Bible split? Split into two sections. The Old Testament, or the Older Testament, and the New Testament, right? 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. Guess what? So is, I, so is Isaiah I read this somewhere and I just thought it was neat and so that's why I'm sharing it with you it's, um, it's just another confirmation of faith for me but Isaiah has 39 chapters that talk about the warnings of, for disobedient Israel and judgment about things to come okay judgment on Israel that's coming what do the 39 books of the Bible as a whole teach they teach the law the instruction and warnings to Israel about what's coming And what about the next 27 books of the Bible? What do they teach? The gospel, the building of the church, the salvation unto Yahweh's children. In similarity, I bet you can't guess what the next or what the last 27 chapters of Isaiah are about. The redemption and the salvation of Yahweh's people. Now, it might be simply coincidence, but I I still think it's pretty neat. The last 27 chapters that make up the second half of Isaiah are divided by three sets of nine. The first nine chapters are about the salvation from Babylonian captivity, which was a historical reality in Israel. We can read about that. Right? The last nine chapters of Isaiah are about the Sabbath, about the salvation from the curse and the future kingdom and the new heavens and the new earth, which has not taken place yet. Right? And the middle nine chapters are about salvation from sin. But guess where the middle, what the middle chapter is in the middle nine chapters? It's Isaiah 53. None other than it. And right smack in the middle of Isaiah 53 is the verse that reads, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Coincidence? Maybe. Maybe. But it's almost like Yahweh draws you right down to the central hub of His entire book. And I just think it's neat. And folks, this is super surface comment compared to the depth of this amazing chapter. There are no words big enough or deep enough to carry the importance of this chapter. It's that important. And here's another one. Check this out real quick. The first chapter in the last section of Isaiah being chapter 40, the first chapter begins exactly where the New Testament begins, with the introduction of John the Baptist. And the last chapter of the last section of Isaiah being chapter 66 ends exactly where the new testament ends with the new heavens and the new earth. It's like the book of Isaiah is just a shrunk down version of both old and new testament. It's just pretty neat to me. Some some 7 or 800 years before the new testament was ever penned all this Isaiah puts together. Folks in this chapter we in this in this chapter we start with the existence on earth and then it goes through his rejection, his execution, and then back up through the empty tomb to his accomplishment and the justification for many. Then his intercession and his glory and the final kingdom. It's all right here in one chapter in a nutshell. Isaiah 53 is quoted in most of the New Testament writings and virtually every piece of it is covered somewhere in the New Testament. It is used by Matthew, by Mark, by Luke, also in the book of Acts. It is dissected by Paul in Romans First and second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Timothy, and Titus. The book of Hebrews, first Peter, and first John also contain parts of this prophecy. It is all throughout the New Testament. So if we're to lose the Bible today and all we had left was Isaiah 53 left in our position, it would be all that we would need to share the gospel with someone. The reason that we could do this is because it's clearly about Yeshua, our Messiah. So as we start to go through these texts in the upcoming week, I would love for you to, for you guys to really just soak in all you can and glean from each verse the depths and the riches that are bound up in this single chapter. I'm still going to give you a brief summary of the chapter, but before I do, I want to point out one more thing that's very crucial to the whole chapter. This text is not only important for its value in terms of scriptural validity, or it's not only important because it points to Christ, but listen it is also important because it answers the age-old question of what must be done in order to escape eternal judgment and damnation. Mm-hmm. It answers the questions of all the question of all questions. What must a sinner do to be made right with Yahweh? Mm-hmm. It is extremely important. Mm-hmm. But there are actually some people who think that it's not necessary. Mm-hmm. Okay? Isaiah 53 they think that it's not necessary. Obviously Atheists wouldn't think Isaiah 53 is necessary. They don't even believe in the Bible. There's a lot of religions out there that don't use these scriptures, and so they wouldn't think that it would be necessary. But I'm speaking about a certain group of people that would use the scriptures. I'm talking about the Jews. They don't think that this chapter is necessary. Why would the Jews reject Isaiah 53? It's part of the Tanakh. Okay, Even the Jews of old times read from Isaiah. We see the Messiah and the scripture stand up in the synagogues and read from the book of Isaiah. Philip is preaching the book of Isaiah, or Isaiah 53 specifically, to the eunuch. So why wouldn't they want that? Because every verse is so compelling about Christ. It's not read aloud in synagogues across the world today. Why? Why do they reject it? It's because Judaism is based on a work system. That's why. And just like Paul says in Romans chapter 10 and verse 3, he says, Because they disregarded the righteousness from Yahweh, which was Christ, and they attempted to establish their own righteousness, which was one of works. And that's why they reject it. See, folks, there are only two kind of religions in the world. You've got the religion of human achievement or works, and then you've got the religion of divine accomplishment or grace. Either you do it yourself or Yahweh does it all for you and you don't do anything. And this has always been the position with the Jews. They believed that their own righteous acts were good enough to save them. That's what they thought. See, when Yeshua came on the scene, he was a nobody from Nazareth. He he never uh, amounted to anything in the eyes of the Jews. They didn't think anything of him. When he couldn't deliver them from their enemies and their negative circumstances, they had him killed. They had him murdered. He didn't come to them to be a king that would relieve relieve them from their bondage, their Roman bondage. That's not why He came. He came to be a king to deliver them from their sins. And they rejected Him. To that end, they said, Who is this man? Who is this man? We don't need a Savior for our sins. We're the sons of Abraham. We keep the law. We do everything right. It'd be nice to have somebody get rid of this bondage that we're under out of Rome. Mm -hmm. They would have liked that. Isaiah had already told them that who he was 700 years prior to this. They had this. They had the whole book of Isaiah. They knew this better than we know it. They had this. They knew exactly who he was or should have known exactly who he was, but they just didn't see it. They didn't see it. You know why? Because in Isaiah chapter 53, when Isaiah talks about the suffering servant, the Jews considered themselves to be the suffering servant. That's their mentality. That's what they think Isaiah 53 is talking about. They think it's talking about national Israel. Mm -hmm. They believe that they are the suffering servant. And so they missed it. But when we read the prophecy, with the backdrop behind it of the Gospels, because we know the Gospels, when we read the prophecy, we can clearly see that it's about the Messiah. Mm -hmm. There's no question in that. When I read through it, Mm -hmm. we can see the suffering servant all through that chapter. And while this chapter does speak about Christ, it speaks about His coming, His ministry, His death, His burial, resurrection, intercession, and exaltation, it is not primarily a prophecy about Christ. In some ways, it doesn't even look forward to the Messiah. Stick with me for a second. I want to show you something that I had never seen before I started studying this prophecy. Notice all the verbs from verse 1 all the way down to the middle of verse 10 are in the past tense. For example, it says, "Who has believed? Who has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? He grew up, he had no form, he was despised, he was pierced, he was oppressed, he did not he did not open his mouth." So forth and so on, all past tense verbs. See, this is describing something that has already taken place. So how could this have already happened if Isaiah is prophesying about Yeshua some 700 years before he arrives? Well, I think what we have here is the, na- is the nation of Israel's confession in the future when Yahweh will redeem national Israel. I think that's what's taking place. In other words, this is what Israel will say when Yahweh opens their eyes to see that they had the only begotten son of Yahweh murdered Zechariah speaks of this day in Zechariah chapter 12 and in verse 10, and it says this, It says, "I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the house of David and the residents of Jerusalem, and they will look upon me whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one who mourns for an only child and weep bitterly for him as one who weeps for a firstborn. See, this is a promise of future salvation of national Israel. It's also promised in Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah chapter 31. Is promised in Romans chapter 11, verses 25 through 27. So what I think we're seeing in the prophecy of Isaiah 53 is a complete confession of the Jews that they will make in the future when they realize that they have crucified Yahweh's means of salvation. This is a sad, sad chapter. It's actually a song of lament over the suffering servant. All the pronouns are plural when speaking of Israel and all the verbs are past tense when speaking of what was done to the Messiah. So with, the, with that mindset as our backdrop, I'm going to go back through chapter 53 one more time. And I want you to just picture the Jews, the nation of Israel who had Christ murdered. I want you to picture them and see what this will look like on that dreadful day that's spoken about right here by Isaiah. In verse 1, it says, Who has believed what we have heard? Or who believed the message given to us is a more accurate translation. Who believed the message given to us? And who has the arm of Yahweh been revealed to? Number one, notice that this is not a message that they gave. It is a message that they received. It was given by an Israelite, but not the ones that will make this confession. But look what they say. Who has believed? Who has believed? Nobody believed it. Nobody believed in the message that was delivered to them. And who has the arm of Yahweh been revealed to? What that means is we didn't understand it was the right arm of Yahweh. We couldn't see it. This is just a Hebrew expression of the power of Yahweh. Nobody recognizes the power of Yahweh through his only son. He illustrated his power over demonic possession, his power over death, his power to heal the lame, to make the blind see. He even illustrated his power over nature. Or crying out loud, Yeshua walked on water. But we didn't see it. That's what they're going to say. We didn't see it. We didn't we couldn't understand it. We should have known that this was the right arm of the Almighty, but we didn't believe it. We rejected it. And then right here in verse two, they're gonna get their they're gonna start their confession. It says, He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. What does that mean? Well, I think it means that he was a sucker branch. He was a sucker branch. He was of no great importance. He was insignificant. If you've ever grown a garden before, then you know exactly what you do to sucker branches. My mama taught me what to do with sucker branches on tomato plants a long time ago. You pinch them off. They're the little branches that grow at the bottom of the stalk. They don't produce any fruit. They're not good for anything. They drain the plant. What do you do with them? You cut them off and you throw them away. Anybody of any age in here that's ever grew a garden, you ought to know that. That's what they say about him. He was a root that grew up out of parched ground. This is their way of saying we don't need him. He was of no importance. He came from a nowhere town called Nazareth. What good could ever come from Nazareth, right? What good could ever come from Nazareth? His mama was a nobody in their eyes. His daddy was a carpenter. Nobody of great stature. Then they say he had no appearance that we would desire him. None. In other words, he had no stately form or majesty. There's nothing royal. There's nothing regal about him. He wasn't like King Saul, set apart from the rest of his brothers. He wasn't the tallest man in Israel. He didn't look like the pictures people have made up of him today with long hair and Fabio looking stuff. He didn't look like that. He didn't look like that. So why would they consider him? They not only, not only that, but in verse 3 he says, they say he was despised. And he was rejected by men, and the word for men here is not the common Hebrew word that we use for men. It's usually this word is usually translated as leaders. He was despised and rejected by leaders. Nobody who was of any importance confirmed his stature or his status as the savior of Israel. the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the people that everybody respected that they that thought they thought these people had the knowledge they didn't even recognize him. The people, if you lived in Jerusalem in the day of Christ, then you would look upon the Pharisees and the Sadducees as people of knowledge. You would have knew they knew all about Judaism. This is a Jewish book, guys. They knew all about Judaism. Here comes the Messiah on the scene, and none of those people recognized the Messiah as being anything. Nothing. Nobody who was of any importance confirmed it. And then at the end of verse 3, he was like one people turned away from, almost like a man that was disfigured. He was someone who no one wanted to see. He hung around with sinners, fishermen, prostitutes, tax collectors. That's who he ran around with. Seven of the disciples were probably fishermen. Four of them had different trades. One of them was Judas of Kyrgios. And he was no good for anything. These are the people that he ran around with. Who would have wanted to have anything to do with him? He had no clout. He didn't walk around in fancy robes and money. He didn't even have a place to lay his head is what he said. He was poor. He wasn't of great esteem. How in the world could Yahweh send somebody into the world that was not of great esteem to save Israel? No way. No way. And that's what they all thought. The last part of verse 3 says that he was despised and we didn't even value him. We didn't even value him. This is somebody making a confession. Who is it? Who didn't value him? We didn't even value him. These are the Jews, and this is their confession. See, just like Paul says, he was, in Romans chapter 9 and verse 32, they stumbled over the stumbling block. He was the stumbling block. Mm. Basically, I think they're confessing that they couldn't see who it really was. They had no idea that Yeshua was Yahweh's anointed. They had no idea. Then in verse 4, they start to cry out. The spirit of Yahweh or the spirit of grace has come upon them and the light is broken through. Their hard hearts have been pricked and they start to confess. And verse 4 starts like this It says, Yet he himself bore our sickness and he carried our pain, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by the Almighty, and afflicted. In other words, we believe he was afflicted by Yahweh because of what he did, not because of our sins. We thought that he was being punished for blasphemy, working on the Sabbath, breaking our traditions. That's why we thought he was being punished. But now we see it. It was all for us. It was all for us. What a great confession. Verse 5 says, But he was pierced because of our transgressions. He was crushed because of our iniquities. Punished for our, punishment for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds brothers and sisters this confession that we're reading here today it's got to be the confession of every believer every single yeah. believer yeah. he bore in his body our sins according to first peter chapter 2 and verse 24 he has paid the price for us all in his body yeah. he was bruised or crushed for us he was pierced through with a spear he had spikes drove through his hands and through his feet and through his head he was pierced with thorns a crown of thorns pressed down on his head. They didn't sit it up there like a crown that a king or queen would wear. It was mashed down into his into his skull. He was the perfect example of expiation. He bore our sins in his body. He bore our transgressions of the law in his body. This should be the realization of each and every believer. Verse 6 says, We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way and Yahweh has punished Him for the iniquity of us all. Once again, we walk in our own flesh. We have left the shepherd. The shepherd didn't leave us. We have left the shepherd and not listened to him or heeded his guidance. And because of that, he has bore our consequences. Verse 7, it says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. This is Yahweh's lamb. This is Yahweh's lamb. Remember at Passover how every father, or head of every household, selects a lamb for the Passover? That's what we do. Brothers and sisters, this was Yahweh's unblemished lamb that, that was being destroyed. And just as we see the lamb die silently year after year after year at Passover, we watch it. So also did Yeshua die a silent death. When he was tried, he spoke not a word in defense. He simply died. Not like a person who would plead their case if they were innocent. He was innocent, but he didn't try to plead his case. He just died. Now he knew his fate and he trusted his shepherd. Just like verse 8 says, he was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? Who thought about what would happen to him? See, the Jews will recollect the oppression of the Messiah. They will remember the unjust trial That he received. The words oppression and judgment here are just words used to describe the trial and the sentencing. The Jews wanted him dead, they wanted him put away, they wanted him cut off from the land of the living. We remember the Gospels and how over and over the leaders of Jerusalem constantly tested him and tried to cause him to stumble into their traps that they might find fault with him. If you've read the Gospels, we read one a while ago in Matthew chapter 22, how they ca- try to cause him to stumble all the time. They would put him in position and make him answer a question, try to, try to catch him in the wrong, but he never failed. But they tried to. They didn't care if he died. He was a troublemaker for them in their false religion. <clears throat> you know, I keep saying the Jews and the Romans wanted him dead, and they did, but they're not really the ones who killed him. They're not really who killed him. They're the agents in the process, but in verse 10, Isaiah says... Yet Yahweh was pleased to crush him, and he made him sick. See, Yahweh made him a restitution offering for many. He was a guilt offering for me and for you. When we get past his death, we can go back up to verse 9, and we can see that it says, They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man at his death, although he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. hadn't done anything wrong, nothing at all. What does it mean that they made his grave with the wicked? Let me give you a little insight on that. Yeshua was killed between two criminals, right? Those are the wicked men. And typically, criminals were thrown into the Valley of Hinnom, which was down a slope on the backside of Jerusalem. The Valley of Hinnom is where we get the word Gehenna from, from the New Testament, okay? It was basically the city dump, and it stayed on fire and burning day and night to consume the city waste. And so Yeshua in the gospel used it as a metaphor for hell, where the fire never goes out and the worm never dies. Probably familiar with that. So what happened to the criminals after they were hung on the stakes, the birds would come and they'd pick apart their carcasses until there was not much left. And after Rome had left them up there long enough to prove to all the spectators that Rome was not somebody that you were going to mess with and you didn't try their patience, They would take what was left of the carcasses down and they would throw them into the valley of Hinnom to be consumed by the fire and the worms. This is what Isaiah means when he says they made his grave with the wicked. However, Yahweh intervened, right? Isaiah says that there was a rich man at his death. Anybody know who the rich man was? Joseph of Arimathea. Do you remember what Joseph did? He took him down. He prepared the body with expensive oils. Why do you think that Joseph cared about Yeshua's body? Nobody else seemed to. For crying out loud, everybody else was afraid to be seen with it. Maybe a couple. I think the women weren't afraid, but the men seemed to be. Yeah. Even Peter denied him. Yeah. But by divine intervention, Yahweh used a man with money to retrieve the body of his only begotten son. Why? I'll tell you why. Because David prophesied about Yeshua in Psalms chapter 16 and verse 10. And he says that he would not abandon the shield or he wouldn't let his faithful one, sit, faithful one see the pit. Amen. See, this was the first step of the resurrection. He's fishing to bring his son up out of the grave. It's fishing to get real. It's fishing to get real. Amen. Yahweh preserved the body of his son that he is about to raise out of the tomb using the rich man, Joseph. Now back over to verse 10 in the second part of it, it reads, he will see his seed, he will prolong his days, and the will of Yahweh will, be, will succeed by his hand. Folks, if you're dead, I don't know about you, but I don't know how you have offspring, and neither do you see them. Isaiah's prophesying about this 700 years prior to this happening. <laughs> do you think it might have been a little confusing to Isaiah? It would have been to me. He just talked about a restitution offering, which means somebody had to die. Christ died. Then he talks about a grave. That means somebody had to be buried in it. Right, But now he's talking about some somebody seeing their offspring. And by the way, this is a physical offspring that he's talking about, not a spiritual offspring. Not that Christ literally had children, but he had a literal family that he will see. I'm not going to get into that today. We'll get into it in the, in, the, in the future in a latter sermon. But we're talking about the bride of Christ here. That is his offspring. That's the seed that he'll see. We will be the seed that is returned to him not only that, Yahweh says that He'll prolong His day, days, which is just a euphemism that means he'll, he'll inherit eternal life. He'll live forever. In other words, Yeshua will be resurrected into eternal life. So here we see that He'll die. We see that He'll be raised. And the will of Yahweh will succeed by His hand. He will gather a bride for His Son through the death of His Son. Now right on down into verse 11, it reads, He will will see it out of his anguish and he will be satisfied with his knowledge. Here we have a statement about Yahweh. How it tears him to pieces to crush his son. A minute ago it says it pleased him, but out of anguish it sounds like it destroys him. Right? I think in one way it probably did please him because he paid the ransom for many and he accomplished a great thing. But in anguish he heard it. But he will see the result, and he will be satisfied. And then to finish the verse, Yahweh's righteous servant, or better translated, Yahweh's righteous slave, will justify many. That's you and I, and he will carry our iniquities or their iniquities. Isn't that wonderful, folks? Mm -hmm. The whole reason that you're born into this world is to serve Yahweh. Okay? And in doing so and believing in his son, he in turn is going to give you eternal life, forgiveness for your sins. And he's going to give you a place in his kingdom where you can live securely forever. Sounds like a pretty sweet deal to me. Well, how do I know this? Look at verse 12 and then I'm going to close. It says, therefore, I will give him the many as a portion and he will receive the mighty as a spoil. That's us guys. Mm. We're the many and the mighty. We're the the righteous one. Many and the mighty are the righteous that he died for. So why does he get them as a reward? Why does the Messiah get those as reward? The rest of the verse tells us that. Because he submitted himself to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sins of many and interceded for the rebels. He gets them as a spoil because he conquered hell for them. See, brothers and sisters, if we die a believer, it's no big deal because we die under Yahweh's grace. It's no big deal. We've been saved. We've confessed our sins. We've been forgiven our sins. And so we die under grace, not suffering the punishment for our sins. But when Yeshua died, he didn't die under grace like you and I did, or like you and I will. He didn't die under grace. He died under the full wrath of Yahweh for the punishment that was due to all of us. He took it all on. Yahweh punished, he poured out all his fury. On the only begotten son, his only begotten son to save a misfit just like me. We all went astray like sheep is what it says about us. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way and Yahweh has punished Yeshua for the iniquity of us all. That's the confession that the Jews will make that day. That is what this prophecy is about. But guys, hear me on this. That is a confession that we all must make because we're as guilty as anybody. And he died the same way for us that he'll die for them, that he died for them. Mm-hmm. If we expect to have forgiveness from Yahweh, then we have to make the confession that Yeshua was pierced for my transgression. He was for my he was crushed for my sins, but by his wounds I am healed. Mm-hmm. I can't wait to unpack this chapter verse by verse. Again, this was simply an introduction and an overview of the chapter. It's so rich rich and it's so deep, and I'm hoping that uh, we'll all come away a little more educated, a little more dedicated, humble, and thankful um, as we go through it verse by verse over the next few months. So until I teach again, I hope you'll take the time to read the chapter and uh, meditate on it. Let Yahweh speak to you through it and just remember the suffering servant of Yahweh and the sacrifices that he made for you.